0: Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. We're in a series in Genesis, and last week we we began looking at chapter 15 of Covenant. And we looked at the first part of covenant last week, which was God's promise. And we've, we, we've seen how God uh, shared his promise very, uh, a very, just with very little information early on to Abram in chapter 12. He lays out more of the promise in chapter 15, the first six verses last week. And so as we began to look at this idea of covenant, we considered first and foremost God's promise. Every covenant has two parts to it. The first part is a promise, and the second part is what we will look at today, what I call the cut of sacrifice. That's what covenant, the word, means. It means to cut, to cut. And so, very much like a promise, but more so than a promise. It is a promise with a deep, securing sacrifice that guarantees it. So God calls Abraham, and he tells him at the first part of chapter 15, weary yourself, In the wonder of my promise in other words he says I dare you to count the ways that you know I will be faithful to you and what will take place is you will weary yourself in just the simple wonder of trying to figure out how great is my love and my promise for you and my provision to you and so Abram in chapter 15 comes back and he 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 thinks he knows how it is that God will fulfill this promise But God says to him, no, that will not be. It won't be a member of your family. I will give you a son. And we've talked about the irony of this. I mean, at this point, Abram's pressing 100 years old. Sarah is pressing upon 90 years old. We we don't need a full explanation of why this was difficult for them to fully grasp, right? But verse 6 tells us this. God says, verse 5, I will give you a son and he will be the heir through which this promise will be fulfilled. And verse 6, friends, verse 6 is the key. The key for all things is us, even today as Christians, but the key for this passage. And he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. So simple, yet so life transforming and profound. Two powerful truths we see in these first six verses. First of all, God invites Abram to strengthen his faith by a greater filling of his promise. He didn't tell him to think about all the things you can do and let that conjure up enough encouragement or courage within you to go do it. He said, think about all the things I have promised you and let that be your strength. The second powerful truth we see is that God will accomplish his will in the life of every person who believes and trusts in him. You see, verse 6 tells us that when Abram believed God, God gave him everything. You say, well, it doesn't say that. It said he made him righteous. That's right. But righteousness is everything, friends. Because in the righteousness of God... The kingdom is unlocked and access into the very throne room of God has been given to us through Jesus Christ. That's what righteousness means. Paul tells us in Romans 4 that these things were written not just to tell us a nice little story with a happy ending and a sunset at the end of it for Abraham. But rather that Paul says these things were written for us. In other words, God is telling us today, just as he said to Abram then, to believe is to be made righteous. God calls people to believe in Jesus by faith as the very promise of his word to receive his righteousness. And so today we continue from this promise of covenant to now see the second part of a covenant. The cut of sacrifice. You see the grace of God is free for all who will believe because it was won by God. It's God's. He owns it. Why? Because he went and he took it by the sacrifice of his son. It is now his. He can give it to whoever he wants to have it. And now God is revealing his plan To show Abraham, but all of those after as well, how he has secured the promise, not only as the victory on the cross, but through that ultimate victory for all people, for all times. This passage, friends, is the framework and the foundation of our understanding for salvation and all that Jesus accomplished on the cross. What God is teaching us here, he will fulfill by Jesus' crucifixion on the cross. But if we don't understand this foundation, this framework, we'll just think that it was a noble thing Jesus has done. It's not just a noble thing, surely not less than noble, but it's far more than simply noble. So let's enter into the mystery of all mysteries and for the sacrifice that secures the soul of man. Look with me in Genesis 15, and we'll begin in in verse 7. Genesis 15 and verse 7. And he said to him, speaking of God, to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now let's stop there for a moment. We have this imagery Of these animals that have been sacrificed by God's command and Abram's obedience. And the parts of the animal are distinctively taken. The life, first of all, is taken from the animal. And the animal is cut in half. Literally, not dismembered or quartered as you might think of. But rather cut in half. And the two pieces are laid open on the ground. And so here it is ordered and we would ask now why why the four animals and why the three years of age we don't know the exact reason for this but here is more than likely why because at three years of age each of these animals reaches the peak of its value in other words it is the highest form of sacrifice that uh, uh, a A person like Abraham whose very wealth of life is determined by the strength of his herd and the number of his herd, it's represented on the ground here. He's given the full measure of representation of all that he owns, of all that he is. And he's done it because God commanded him to. You see, God reminds Abram of who he is. He reminds Abram of what he has done and he reminds him of the promise of what he's going to do. But there will be no promise fulfilled if faith is not established. And that's what God is showing Abraham here. That's what he's showing us here. And Abram asked, but how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now, be careful lest you suspect that Abram is in some way doubting. This is not a doubt. This is a genuine question. We'll get to doubts in a moment, okay? This is a genuine question. He simply wants to know, God, how are you going to bring this about? I think I'm going to have to be participating in this since it's going to be my son. So, he wants to know how he can be certain that he possesses God's promise. Let me bring this into a modern day application for you and I today. Abraham is seeking assurance of God's promise in his life. Have you ever asked God for assurance of his promise in your life? I hope you have. I hope you have. I hope you've poured your heart out and said, God, I just need to know. I just need to know, I mean, this is a fundamental question of the Christian faith, friends. This is as essential to our faith as blood and oxygen are to our bodies. And it is a question from which we never move beyond. I mean, what parent gets angry when a child runs up to him and goes, Mom, Dad, do you love me? Oh, I don't have time for these hard questions right? No, you don't say that. You know, you you just try to show them one more time something that they'll never fully understand. How great is your love for them? Yet many Christians get anxious when questions or doubts arise in their life. They feel guilty for needing God's continued assurance. They think, you know, God, you've done so much for me. Why is it that I feel I can pull so little off for you? But friends, I, I want to press up on that idea today and simply say to us, that is not the way God designed us. God is not ashamed of our need for assurance. As a matter of fact, the very way that God designed salvation in relationship with Him to work Is to be dependent upon his assurance. The very essence of faith means that Christians establish their life in relationship with God by his assurance. The father telling his children how much he loves us. You see certainty and confidence in salvation comes from the Holy Spirit of God within us. Reminding us. It does not come from self-assurance, self-accomplishment, or self-assertion. God's will is that we live in complete and continual dependence upon Him. Not that we live for Him in our own strength. The question God wants His children to ask, as much as any other question in life, is the question that Abram's posing here. How, God, do we know that we possess your gift? This this is a beautiful question. We know that we possess God's promise only when we live in the full assurance from His Holy Spirit that we are possessed by God. Listen, friends, I want to provide one of two principles for the Christian life. I will appropriately refer to them as life points today. Assurance from God in salvation is essential DNA for the Christian life. If you have a quote-unquote salvation or relationship with God by which you do not need His regular ongoing Deep assurance. You do not have a biblical salvation. Any salvation. Or what is labeled as such. That allows in any measure degree. For you not to be fully dependent upon God at all times. Is not what the Bible teaches salvation to be. And be very careful. We live in a day and time when salvation receives so many different definitions, buzz phrases, buzzwords, catchphrases, that we must be sure that what we understand salvation to be is what God's Word says it is. Assurance from God in salvation is as essential DNA for the Christian life. God commands Abram to bring these... uh, heifer the female goat the ram the turtle dove and the pigeon and Abram brings the sacrifice to God he he kills the animals he cuts them in halves he lays the pieces on the ground and he guards them for the purpose of sacrifice now I want you to understand another principle here that is so critical to the life of a Christian that it can't just be passed over here Abram obeyed in offering the sacrifice not as a means for him to believe but because he already believed. When was Abram declared righteous? Verse 6. What verse are we in now after verse 6? That is so important friends because these sacrifices will not make Abram righteous. His faith in God made him righteous because God recognized his faith and God's the one that made him righteous. So like we've already established that in the understanding and what God is doing is he is showing Abram how salvation works. He's showing us how salvation works. And faith comes before the sacrifice is made. Why? Because Abram is not the giver of the sacrifice. Where did Abram get all of this stuff from? From the very beginning he got it from God. And he's already recognized that in chapter 14. When he met Melchizedek and he offered a tithe of everything, what was Abram saying? Everything that I have, God, is yours. So when God said, you bring me a heifer, a ram, a goat, turtle doves, and pigeons, Abram's like, well, it's yours already. I can't keep it back from you. Why? Because he believed. Because he believed. You see, a sacrifice, and offering to the Lord, is an expression of faith, not a means to achieve it. Trying to produce faith through obedience, that's what we call legalism. If I just do it enough, maybe I will genuinely believe. Trying to bypass the necessity for obedience, that's called licentiousness. Oh, God loves you enough, don't worry about doing what He said. Neither of those are true salvation. Obedience is the product of our faith, not the producer of it. It is the expression of our believing in God, not the impetus for us to trust Him. Man, if I just do enough for God, I know I'm going to get it right at some point. Obedience is the manifestation of our faith, not the manipulation within us that causes it. And some of you... You you got that whole manipulation thing going on deep within. That God is going. You're going to feel God's love more if you just keep doing all the right things. And I want you to know, God wants you not to stop doing the right things, but to cease doing. And just receive what He wants to already give to you, and let your obedience flow out of that. You see, God calls us to believe in the glory of His promise. And here's how he does that. By looking at his character and seeing his nature in order to trust that what he has promised is what he plans to fulfill. And for us to know that he has the power to do what he has promised to do. As Romans 4.25 says. Trust in God is what empowers our obedience to God. Some kind of adherence to His rules or His law that bypasses a trust in Him and His character and nature and ability is a painful deception, but it is not an uncommon one. As a matter of fact, it's one we all must learn. Why? Because we live in a highly churched culture. Well, I think that can charge it a little bit, but it's even far more uh, 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 deeply set within the very human nature of our sinful nature. You see, sin to the very core of our being, wants to deceive us that we can do this. We may need a little push from God occasionally, but we can do this. And God says, no, you cannot. No, you will not. But you won't have to because I will do it for you. Trust. God's promise in us, friends, is what inflames the affections of our whole being, to adore the knowledge of his command in our heart as the source of power and strength to obey it. This is one key way as a pastor I've learned to recognize people who are genuinely growing and maturing in the Christian faith. They don't have a problem with God's commands. They identify the fact That they fail miserably at them on a repetitive basis, but that doesn't crush them. They know God is working in the midst of their failures to bring forgiveness, cleansing, and growth and maturity through that. People who come and say, man, I just want to do more for God and I just don't feel like he's happy with me because I do so little for him or I'm so poor at obeying his commands. The first thing I want to say to them is don't worry about how poor you are in it. Just offer your poverty to God. That's what he's saying to us here. You see that God is telling Abram, get out of the way and watch what I'm about to do. David says to us, I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Do you know why the law of God is there? All the Old Testament, you know why it's so important for us today? Just to read with detail after detail how great is God's love for us. How high is the mountain that must be climbed for our salvation that is impossible for us, but God moves it in an instant. That's what he's telling us. God wills that we have certainty and confidence in our possession of his promise. So he works, hear me, for our assurance by his power in us to obey his commands. Here's the second principle, the second life point I want to offer to you today. The Christian's motivation and strength to obey the Lord is always sourced from our relationship with God, knowing that he is the one who will do it. You know that old saying, well, my daddy or my mama and that little baby or the little boy or girl at that moment is about to brag on what their mama or daddy can do. And so often, if mom and daddy are hearing it, they just laugh. They don't correct them because they want that child believing they're in anything that mama or daddy can't or won't do for them. But the fact of the matter is, mom and daddy know. We can't do all things perfectly. We don't do all things perfectly, right? But God wants you to trust with the innocence of, that, innocence of that child, knowing this, that he can, he will, he has for us. Now let's walk through this great mystery as God acts in our behalf. Why is this important, friends? Because I want you to know this isn't something that is a break glass if needed kind of uh, a decoration in the house it is a life blood of assurance for us in our relationship with him and it is the very motivation and strength for our obedience to the lord verse 12 through 21 let's come back to the sacrifice as the sun was going down a deep sleep fell on abram and behold dreadful and great darkness fell upon him Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. What's he talking about? Joseph is on the throne in in Egypt. He's second command to Pharaoh. There's a famine in the land of Canaan. his brothers come down to buy, he sends them home, ending up, his whole family, Jacob, his father comes down, they're all reunited, and in the midst of Egypt, they're given the best, but that Pharaoh dies, and the Israelites, their numbers multiply with greatness across the land, but when that Pharaoh died, the next Pharaoh did not remember them, and began to enslave them, okay, and so uh, uh, leading up to the end of of genesis and between genesis and exodus there are 400 years of egyptian slavery that's what he is telling abram about that didn't catch god by surprise do you you get that and if that didn't catch god by surprise your problems don't catch him by surprise either okay all right let's keep reading verse 14 but i will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And then verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark. Behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day... The Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the land of the Kenazites, the land of the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Verse 12 tells us that God puts Abram into a deep sleep. Now this is not sleep like some of you do during my messages. If you're wondering, I don't mind. I'm just glad you're here. You'll catch some of it. You'll catch what you need to. Go ahead and rest well. That way I know I'm going back to church, man. I get a good nap every time I go. He'd done all he could do, bringing all of his sin, all of his imperfect self, and setting it before God. But when he brought all of that, all he could do, all he really had was great need before God. And then verse 12 begins to describe what I would consider a bone-chilling description of events. Here's how it says it. A dreadful and great darkness fell upon Abram. Friends, this is not a storm cloud. This is no regular darkness. This is the envelopment of darkness. Not only in the skies, but darkness in the soul as well. He's showing him who he is without him. It is the absence of light that rattles the nerves and shakes the soul. It is when everything around you may not change, but something within you strikes you in such a way that all of a sudden there is a sense about you of something far overwhelming coming to you. And there is no depth of fear nor anxiety that's left untouched in Abram and of a magnitude never experienced or known. It's like the onset of an adrenaline-induced shock. There is a tunnel vision that the body naturally defaults to because it attends all of the senses and all of the energies at whatever it is that immediately is threatening it and the interesting thing in situations like this so often what the threat is is not yet visible but it comes from within and it strikes the body to attend everything to this one in other words what set in on Abram was beyond his control was beyond his comprehension and it commanded the attention of his absolute whole being physical mental emotional spiritual the core of his personhood God held Abram's undivided attention for absolute clarity and absolute certainty in this moment because he is revealing to him his covenant. God takes him to a deep place far beyond mere consciousness into the spirit realm. And here God reveals the details of how his promise will come about. He tells Abram that his offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs. And then they will become afflicted in captivity for 400 years. But God will not forget them. He will bless them through the midst of this. And will deliver them with great possessions at the end of it. And the land that God promised to Abraham will be given to all of his offspring at that time. And then it tells us that a smoking fire pot, verse 17, and a flaming torch passed between the pieces of the sacrifice that were laid open on the ground. You see, those two emblems represent God the smoke likely the very spirit with which his presence was so palpable and the torch the light of his truth that could not be threatened by any un or half Truth. You see, friends, this is not like most covenants where both parties would pass through. Two businessmen would come and they would both bring a sacrifice that was worthy of the contract that they were about to cut with one another and sign on the dotted line. And in this day and time, regarding the contract that they were going to make, they would bring a sacrifice. And in the same way, they would cut the pieces open. And the two parties that were going to enter into the sacrifice of the covenant would meet between the the sacrifice as a symbol of the fact that we gave this up so we could enter into this. That's what marriage is all about. When two people cut away from selfishness and self-centeredness and all of the things of individuality and they become one because they pass between the cuts of the covenant in order to receive the promise of God in the new relationship. You see, this is as fundamental to the Christian faith as any teaching could be because we are beginning to understand what God has done for us in Jesus Christ but in this covenant in this cut in this sacrifice there would only be one who would pass through Abram did not come between the pieces of the sacrifice only God would only God could and he passes through the sacrifice alone Hebrews 6:13 and 14 tells us for when God made a promise to Abraham Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Abraham, still arrested, paralyzed with fear, watches as God passes through, solidifies the covenant through which his promise will be fulfilled. Friends, covenant the foundation and framework for the gospel this is the divine will of God in our salvation and it is from God and God alone he is the one who has offered up his sacrifice and passed through for the covenant of his salvation and the mystery of God's covenant is now been revealed to us in Jesus Christ it is the sacrifice offered up once for all for all Who believe, listen, friends, I want you to walk away with this today and understand that God sent Jesus as our sacrifice that we might receive salvation, life in relationship with Him. What we are seeing in Genesis 15, we in no less way enter into that same adrenaline-induced, fear-attending, tunnel-vision place to watch God in our place. And you know what we call it today? Conviction by the Holy Spirit. Paul's doxology celebrates the revelation of God's mystery of his will in Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 16, verse 25 to 27, he writes, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul says it's God's mystery he has made it known. Us and not only is Jesus our salvation, but the mystery of God is revealed in Him as our whole life with God in Jesus Christ. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Paul writes, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Now, listen to this godliness, He was manifested in the flesh, that's Jesus, vindicated by the Spirit. Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. This is the mystery that has been revealed to us. Yes, God's will for your life will surely be a mystery. But it's not the why, or excuse me, it's not the what, it it is the why of the mystery. In other words, when we talk about God's will being a mystery, it's not a mystery in the sense that we can't understand it. It's already been revealed in Jesus Christ, but it's the why. Jesus came and died to rescue us from sin by the ransom of his blood, by rescuing us from the kingdom of darkness and transferring us to the kingdom of light, by reconciling us in relationship with the Father and and redefining our life that we live here and now. You see, the mystery of godliness is revealed in the person, in the teaching, in the life, and in the work of Jesus Christ. But the only mystery that remains is why would God do all that he's done for lost Dead, reprobate, rebellious sinners like me. Why would God do this? And of course, the mystery is not one of unknownness, but one of wonder. Because we know why he did it too. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You see, the mystery of godliness is the overwhelming glory that consumes the whole of our being to just exist with God. And be fully satisfied in Him. This is the Christian life, friends. One of glory. I want to offer briefly three revelations that tell us why we should believe in Jesus and receive God's covenant promise in Him from this passage. Three revelations that He makes for us. Number one, Jesus is the perfect sacrifice made for the covenant to be received. A sacrifice has been made once for all to atone for sin. There is no other sacrifice that will ever be made that God will entertain as atonement for sin. Why? Because there doesn't need to be. His wrath is fully satisfied against sin. God the Father sent Jesus as a propitiation for our sin. In other words, He offered Him up as a substitute in our place and as the atonement for our sin debt. That's what it means for him to be a propitiation. Jesus became our sacrifice. Jesus willingly laid down his life to satisfy God's wrath and to atone for our sin, debt. And think about what took place on Jesus' day of crucifixion. It tells us at the sixth hour, about midday, when the sun should be its brightest, a darkness fell over the land. Anything sounding familiar here? the earth began to quake, tombs came open, the dead came out of the graves. Tell me, friends, does any of this sound remotely familiar to what we just read of what transpired with Abraham before God? God was satisfied with Jesus' sacrifice and he passed through on our behalf by Jesus. The triune God, the one who is the Word incarnate, And the one who is the Spirit alive came and died to bring life to us. Jesus is the only one in whom the promise of our salvation is secured. And we receive God's covenant promise when we enter into Jesus' sacrifice for us by faith. By faith, His death was our death by faith, his life is our life. Therefore, I exhort you today believe in Jesus. Place your faith in him as God's sacrifice for your sin, because all of God's promises in him are yes. And amen. You see, believe doesn't mean simply to affirm or agree, but rather to immerse our whole being. And I want to take you back into Genesis 15 here with our own belief. Too often church culture reduces belief to just something where we, uh, uh, we, we have some kind of mere agreement of intellect. Or we have some simple uh, self-induced act of volition. Or maybe it's the bending by emotional stirring. And if we can get a decision out of one of these three, it's good. But believe is none of these individually. It is what is produced by all of these corporately coming together. You see, the gospel reveals Jesus Christ unlike any other. Like the great darkness that fell on Abraham when God falls upon your life by the conviction of Holy Spirit. You see your sin for what it is, ultimate offense and rebellion against the holy God. You stand before God and you've got nothing to say. You are, as Romans 1 says, without excuse before him. And yet with the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross laid open, God says, I am satisfied. I'll give to you what He has done for you. And then with the attention of our whole being attuned to this news that is completely life-altering, we are simply to say yes and thank you. Jesus, friends, is the only sacrifice by which covenant is made. The second revelation is this, the whole promise rests solely on God because only He passed through to enter into covenant. It's not Jesus plus, it's not Jesus minus, it's God. The great demand for your life will never be met with your life, but it can be satisfied for your life because Jesus has already paid sin's price for you. The Bible tells us, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, salvation is God's free gift to all who believe from first to last, beginning to end. He won it, and He said this, I'll give it to anyone who believes. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 10, 13. The third revelation is this. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's covenant promise. All of God's promises are yes and amen in him. Galatians 3, 14 confirms this. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Faith. Jesus died to give us. What he alone could secure for us. 2 Corinthians 5.15 And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. In his death and resurrection, we take on his life. And our life now is lived for him. That's why Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. God calls you to believe in Jesus Christ and out of your relationship with him to walk with him in obedience every day. God sent Jesus as our sacrifice that we might receive salvation, life in relationship with him. Do you know Jesus? Have you believed in him? If not, I invite you to do that today. Let's pray.